Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. This is actually a continuation of our study from last week. Uh, we uh, talked about the, some pillars of the Christian faith. Well, we're going to continue uh, to speak about what those other pillars are uh, that Paul lists here in the introduction uh, to the book of Colossians. Uh, let me start off by reading the verses. It says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the world, in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. That is, it is also, um, excuse me, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. That is the word of God. Amen. So uh, last week uh, we discussed the will of God and uh, that was front and center. We saw that in the first uh, two verses there, uh, but we discussed it in, in how it relates to the spiritual calling, our vocation that God has given each and every single one of us. Uh, we, we talked about how each believer has been gifted with these spiritual gifts and, and also talents to be able to carry out God's calling upon uh, their lives. And we explicitly said that, or we said that God explicitly and specifically calls us into ministry uh, in different aspects of our lives. Uh, I, he calls us into uh, ministry at home, and then he also calls us into ministry at church. Now, I, I made that designation now so that we can kind of understand the different places in which we must serve. But in all actuality, uh, your ministry is your life. And that's something that we have to understand. Ministry is just not at church and it's not just at home. Uh, your ministry is who you are in Christ and who, who God has uh, gifted you to be and, and who you are growing to be. So ministry is all aspects of your life. But for today, so that we can understand the designations, you are equipped and you have been called specifically to be part of your family and, and, and to be part of your home. But then you have also been called and specifically gifted to be part of uh, this local body here, this local church. Now, we talked about how our service to God should be sacrificial, uh, meaning that it, it should be a strain for us or it should be sometimes it, it should be us uh, just just pouring in to the ministry, pouring in to people. And so it shouldn't be just easy going for us. Service is not easy going. Scripture describes it as picking up our cross and following him, right? So it should be sacrificial from our standpoint, but it should seek the betterment of both family and church. We're talking about these two different aspects of life. Uh, whenever we serve, it must be sacrificial and seek the betterment of family and church. In other words, we are putting God first, and then we are also uh, putting others before us because we are loving each other as we love ourselves, right? So we are fulfilling the, the greatest commandments there, or the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. Um, the, the, the Bible tells us about how this should look like and the purpose behind everybody's ministry. Ephesians chapter 4, this is a passage I, I used last week. Verses 11 through 12, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the body of Christ. 
So that's our whole purpose, right, is to, to minister to the body of Christ and to put others first and to serve God with all of our hearts. We also discuss the uniqueness of the Christian relationship with God and also each other. Uh, we talked about how we are saints. Paul talks to the church and sends this letter to the church, and he says to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, he addresses them two different ways. He says to the saints and faithful brothers. These are not two different groups that he's talking about. These are the same groups. He's just addressing them in different ways. First of all, he says to the saints. Why? Well, because we belong to God. And he's saying you are God's children. You are God's chosen. You are, you are, you are God's elect, so to speak. And, and you are his children. You are his spiritual family. You are his royal priesthood. Uh, you are people for his own possession. So therefore, you are saints. The word saint means to be set apart. Uh, to be sacred for God. And so we are saints because we belong to God. We are made sacred by the blood of Christ for the glory of God. But then he also uses the other designation. He says brothers. The plural form of this is speaking to both men and women. So in essence, Paul is saying to the saints and brothers and sisters of this church in Colossae. So when he refers to them as brother and sisters, that shows us that we not only belong to God as saints, but we belong to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's why we call each other that. We call each other brother and sister because that has a spiritual meaning. We are to treat each other as spiritual family. Uh, we are connected uh, as spiritual brothers and sisters to the spiritual body that is Christ, the spiritual body that is the church. So we have this relationship. The blood of Christ is what binds us together. And actually, it goes even further than that. It infuses us into one spiritual body. That was a lot of stuff we talked about last week, and I think it was extremely helpful. It was for me, at least, getting back to the foundational things of our, of our faith. Um, sometimes we, we kind of we want to learn what we call the higher stuff or the deeper stuff. And uh, this foundational stuff is as deep as you can get. And it's, it's completely necessary for us to remind ourselves of this and, and to remember how God has, has set up uh, his church, how he has set up his kingdom. And so getting back to these pillars of the Christian faith, I, I hope it's encouraging for you and I hope it's beneficial for you uh, because we, we surely need it as, as a church. And I speak about the universal church. Now, when we look at the pillars of the Christian faith today, uh, we see several different pillars come up in our verses, verses 3 through 8. Uh, we see the pillars of the, the Trinity, the gospel or the, the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, we see prayer. And then we also see the gospel in verses 3 through 8. Those are the three things that I want to talk to you about today. The Trinity, prayer, and the gospel. Now, before I get into um, the meat and potatoes, I, I want to talk to you about the theme of Colossians and just remind you, of, of what is what Paul's accomplishing here in this letter. Uh, first of all, we have to acknowledge, you know, just studying two books out of the Old Testament, this can we can kind of understand this better, but we see that throughout the Old Testament, God's people were tempted with idolatry, and they failed in many ways. They failed over and over and over again, and they were punished because of their sins. Well, we fast forward through everything go through the Gospels, we come to the epistles. Colossians is, is a reminder 
of their failures in the past. And so through the book of Colossians, uh, God reminds us of his command to fully commit ourselves to him as willing servants. Um, we are not to trust in anything else in life or death but Christ. We cannot put our faith, we cannot put our trust completely in anything else but him. And Colossians screams that to us. Our hope for justification, regeneration, sanctification, and eventually glorification, all that rests in Christ alone. And so that is the overarching theme of this book is in Christ alone. And you're going to hear that phrase come up as we go through the book, just like you heard the eternal king of glory come up as we went through first and second Samuel. As, as Colossians helps us to look at Christ and it helps us to see that Christ is more than sufficient to give us everything we need for life and godliness. Uh, Christ, again, is, is, is all we need, and if we have him, then we have everything. If we don't have him, then we have nothing. So that's how pivotal and that's how important he is uh, to us. Now, speaking of Christ, Paul establishes something here with this church that's really important because, yes, he's promoting Christ, but he wants, he wants the church to have correct theology. And uh, he starts off with the theology of the Godhead. That, that's what he starts off with in his introduction. And notice in verses 3 through 8, you see him really expound on, on, on the essence of God. And so to make God fully known to the believers, Paul presents God as he truly exists. Uh, verse 3, he says, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first designation he makes. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. And then verse 7 is like it. When he talks about Epaphras, he says Epaphras is a faithful minister of Christ. He didn't say he is a faithful minister of God the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, he said he is a faithful minister of Christ. Then in verse 7, speaking about Epaphras again, he said that uh, he had made known to us your love in the Spirit. In the Spirit. So there, we need to notice that Paul refers to three persons that make up one God. That's when we talk about pillars, that is, that is a huge pillar of our, found, of our faith. In other words, Paul is teaching that God is three in persons, one in essence. He is saying that it is, it is God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and his Holy Spirit. They are what make up what we call the Trinity. Now, this is a foundational, and I, when I say foundational, I mean essential doctrine of the Christian faith. If you don't believe in the Trinity, you are not a Christian. That's how essential it is. It, it has to be essential. It, you have to believe in it because this is the way God has presented himself in Scripture, and this is the way he exists. So we worship one God who exists in three persons. If Paul was talking about three separate gods, 
this would have fallen under a heretical teaching called polytheism, where you are worshiping more than one God. You are worshiping a variety of different gods. But we do not, as Christians, we do not worship a variety of, of different gods. Uh, we worship the one true living God. We have a monotheistic faith, a monothe monotheistic religion. We worship one God who exists in three persons. Now, when you talk about the Trinity and how important it is, well, the Trinity divides us from a lot of other different religions. Two main ones is it divides us from Judaism and it also divides us from the Muslim faith. We do not worship the same God. They worship a different God. They worship a false God. We worship the one true God because one of the persons in the Trinity is Christ. If you deny Christ, you deny God. And that's what Paul is getting to here in this letter with, with in this letter to the church in uh, Colossae. He is saying God is God the Father, God the Son, he's God the Spirit. All three exist one in essence. Three persons, one in essence. So why is that important? Well, number one, it's important because God wants us to know how he exists. It is important also to see how God functions within these three persons. Um, I will say this. The Trinity is so profound that my description of it up here cannot do it justice. In fact, no one in this world has the correct words to be able to describe to you how they coexist. Um, outside of scripture, it cannot be illustrated. Any illustration I give you, it's going to fall short of who the Trinity is and, and how God exists and how, how they coexist and, and how they function. We just do not have an illustration for that. Uh, that is something that we get to experience and worship God for on the other side of heaven a little bit more clearer than we do here on this side. But I think it's important for us to see the Trinity in how, uh, how they, the different um, um, people or the different persons of the Trinity function. Uh, Paul describes the different functions of the Trinity. He says, God the Father, by his description in the verses 3 through 8, he says, God the Father the originator of all things. All things proceed from the Father. Now, this, this is also said by Paul in all of his other epistles, um, how everything comes and proceeds from the Father, and that is the reason we pray to the Father. We are to pray to the Father because everything comes from the Father. Um, everything proceeds through God the Son, that is why in him, the Bible says, all things hold together, and especially faith, hope, and love. Notice those three, th those three things here in existence in verses 3 through, uh, through 8. But everything that proceeds from the Father through the Son is accomplished by the work of the Spirit. Today, we must worship the triune God Spirit and in truth. Uh, we are told that in the Bible. Um, we must understand that we were made in the image of God by the Father because we were created by him. We have physical and spiritual life through the Son 
He provides everything for us. In him we live, breathe, and have our being. And then we bear spiritual fruit by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and we see that described in the Bible, but we also see it uh, working in our lives. We see God as he exists, and we worship him for that. Um, he is perfect in all that he does, and he is perfect in all that he is. And we must acknowledge the fact that he exists in three persons, one essence, but three persons. And the functions of these three persons uh, fulfills everything we need for life and godliness. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing, and, and again, I can't give it justice, and what I'm talking to you about today doesn't even scratch the surface of what the Trinity is. Um, I believe my job today is just to point out the fact that from the very beginning, after Christ rose from the grave, and after these apostles, they were taught these foundational things, the Trinity is part of that foundational teaching that must be passed down throughout the church so that we can know who God is and how he exists. It was so important that, that Paul's writing to this church and he is writing to them, making them realize, teaching them that God exists in three persons, but one in essence. Um, the Nicene Creed says it perfectly or as close to perfect as you can. It's not scripture itself, but it, it lays it out really, really good. And I'm going to read it to you right now. It says, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and all that is seen and unseen. So there it establishes the function of God. Everything comes from God the Father. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, uh, consubstantial to the Father. Through him, all things were made for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. And then of the Spirit, it says, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. It's a beautiful creed, and, and, and it just lays out um, the Trinity and uh, the, the functions of the Trinity, the essence of the Trinity, and how we should view God and how we should worship him. So that's the first thing that we see is, is just this wonderful description of the Trinity that Paul gives the church. Second thing we see within verses 3 through 8 is prayer. Now, Paul begins this letter with the mention of prayer. And in this case, he's giving thanks to God. What is he giving thanks for? Well, he's giving thanks to God for the believer's faith, love, and hope. Uh, we've seen that before somewhere else. It's actually more developed when we see it later in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
Paul's able to expound more on, on these three things. But here we see uh, the beginning of the concept of, of, of that, that theology that Paul is developing in, in his ministry and in his mind. See, although Paul had not visited the church in Colossae, he had heard about their growth in the Lord through uh, Epaphras. Epaphras, what, he is the person who is believed to be the, one of the elders of the church and maybe the, the founding father of that church, so to speak. And so uh, he goes and he visits. He's either visiting Paul in prison or he's in prison with him. But he is speaking to Paul about the church, and Paul is encouraged with the growth that is taking place there. The believers in Colossae had their faith firmly in Christ. Paul reflects that in this letter. They displayed a love for each other and had their hope centered on Christ for their future glorification. All those things sounded great, but there was a reason why Paul was writing the letter. There were some issues going on within the church. But despite that, this was a, a, a pretty healthy church. Every church has issues. I know that's hard to believe that we have issues, right? But every church has issues. Um, and and so, so this is a church that was, that was fighting uh, uh, persecution, not persecution, but persecution. And they were fighting uh, just division from within. And so they were fighting false teachings. Uh, but the fact is, they were fighting against these things. And Paul is writing them to encourage them and to teach them correct theology, but to encourage them to continue to fight. Now, what Paul describes here is what a church is to look like. Are the things that I, I just read, let me, let me say them again. The believers in Colossae had their faith firmly in Christ. Paul establishes that in our verses. They displayed love for each other. He says that in verses 3 through 8 as well. And they had their hope centered on Christ for their future glorification. He says that in verses 3 through 8. That should be said of every church. That should be said of our church. Amen? We should have those things in common. That is a healthy church. A healthy church is not based on numbers, members, building size. It's not based on budget, production, music ministry, youth ministry, who you have preaching. It's not based on any of that. It is based on Christ and Christ alone. And that's what we see here is Paul describing this church, and it's a wonderful description. It's a wonderful description, and you see that they have all these things in common. So what does that teach us? Well, we should work for the Lord, but know that our work does not save us. That, that's what it teaches us. That's one thing it teaches us. We should work for the Lord, but know that our work doesn't save us. That's why he says, oh, you have your faith firmly in Christ. They, they were hard workers, but they knew the gospel. They understood the gospel, that they were saved through the blood of Christ. Now you have this false teaching coming in and trying to, trying to sway them away from that truth. And some of them were starting to believe it, like what they did, what they said, that saved them. And Paul's like, no, 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 you must remember to have your faith firmly planted in Christ alone for salvation. 
And, and so we, as believers, yeah, we must, we must work. We must put in uh, the service that we are called, and it must be sacrificial. It's going to be hard. It's going to be tiring. It's going to take up our time, but we must work for the Lord, but not for the fact of our salvation or not for the sake of our salvation. We are working unto God because we have been called his servants. We have been called into ministry to do his will. And we are praising God through the work that we are doing. We should also love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We should care for one another. We should reach out. I love what Pastor Laramie said earlier when he asked you to reach out to Sister Cindy, send her a text, call her. Yes, do that. Do that. But also reach out to the Pullins. Congratulate them. When, when one mourns, everybody mourns, right? When one rejoices, everybody rejoices. There's a connection that we must have between one another that's different than anywhere else. That's what we are called to. That's what love looks like. That's how we are recognized in this world. And so that's what we must do. We should know, we should also know that what we experience here on earth pales in comparison to the glory that will be granted to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the last thing that he talked about. There, he, he noticed that in them. He, they have this, this hope, this wonderful hope of their future glorification. They understand that what they go through here in life pales in comparison to, to that. And the, the sufferings that we are uh, that, that, are, that we are going through here, they are nothing compared to the glory that God is going to uh, reveal in us uh, when we get to the other side. But Paul and the believers had lavished this church with prayer. And uh, we see that in our verses. And I'll next, I'm not going to get too much into the doctrine of prayer because I, I, I'm going to give that opportunity to Pastor Laramie because I think his verses go more in detail into that. And, and I don't want us to step on each other's toes. Uh, I weigh more than his, and mine would hurt more if I stepped on his toes. But um, the fact is, is that I, I do want to touch on prayer here. Because what's really important, what sticks out, and what's really unique here in this passage, is that it seems like, for the most part, Epaphras had given Paul a decent report about the church. Paul, uh, Epaphras was concerned about some false doctrine that was starting to grow in the church, and that's what Paul starts to address here um, in this book. But for the most part, if, if you were, you know, if I'm on the outside looking in and I'm comparing good, bad, what's going on in this, the life of this church, a lot of it, it, it seems good. Uh, so some issues needed to be addressed by Paul, but the believers there seem to be fighting well. Well, even though they were doing well, I want us to notice that Paul and then those with him, the believers with him, they felt it important to keep the church in prayer. And to me, that stands out. If, if this church was really suffering like heavy persecution or this church was in the, in the middle of a huge division, I, I could understand the, the emphasis on prayer. But here, Paul mentions praying for the church and though that's not the case for this church, there was nothing, it didn't seem like there was anything like major, major, major happening that would destroy this church. But Paul and the believers with him felt it important to pray for them. Now, the fact that Paul was praying for this church, even when they were experiencing some spiritual and numerical growth, 
To me, that's important. Why? Well, because we tend to lavish prayer on each other when something urgent or tragic has happened. And that is completely appropriate. We need to do that. As a body of Christ, we need to be praying when, when those things happen, an urgent thing or a tragic thing. We need to bathe that person, that family, that situation in prayer. But it is also necessary to pray for each other in good times and in bad. Like We, we need to do that. And, and the reason why is because there is temptation to sin in either situation. Right. A lot of times we we don't tend to pray for each other when we see each other doing well. I mean, we may thank God. Hopefully we're thanking God for that other person. And we're saying, praise God, hallelujah, that that God is blessing you. But to be praying for each other in the middle of that is extremely important, no matter if it's good or bad. Um, When a brother or sister comes to your mind. We need to pray for them. It, it, they're coming to our mind for a specific reason. Uh, the other day, I was uh, last last Sunday or last Saturday, I was finishing my sermon notes and typing my sermon notes up, and a brother's name just came to my mind, and and I saw his face plain as day, and, and I was like, I need to reach out to this person and let him know and to pray for him. And I immediately started praying for him, and told him I was just reaching out. Nothing, nothing major was happening. Nothing major was happening. I don't know why God brought uh, him into my mind, but he did. And I felt compelled to pray for him, and I, I have no idea what it was for. I just know that I did what, what I felt like I was prompted to do. I encourage you, no matter who it is within the body of Christ, um, no matter if they're going through good times or bad times, if you are prompted to pray for them, then pray. That's very important. We need to be people of prayer. See, prayer is not the least we can do for one another. It is the most. But prayer is also a catalyst for ministry. And that's something that we have to remember. As we pray for others, our hearts are softened to their needs. And our appreciation for our own blessings increases. You ever have you ever done that? You 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 sit there and someone comes to mind, or you begin to pray for a brother and sister in Christ. And when you initially start praying for them, you you start praying for them, and you have all these different things going on in your own head and your own life, and you're consumed by them. Somebody has a bigger need, you start praying for them, and then after you finish praying for them, you start thanking God for the blessings in your life. It like it changes everything about about your situation and how you think about your situation. From a biblical standpoint, it makes me think about Moses and the Israelites. I, I always enjoy going back and reading how in the, in the beginning, Moses, he got to the point where he couldn't stand the Israelites. He would complain about them all the time and he would complain about them to God. He complained about and, and then they sin against God and God says, I'm going to wipe them out. And he pleads with God, please don't wipe them out. He becomes like their intercessor. And he's pleading with God, please don't wipe them out. Understand who they are. You know, he speaks up for them and, and says, you are a gracious God who forgives. That is what pray, that's what prayer does. Whenever, whenever we have a certain mindset about something, we go to it in prayer. 
the Spirit of the Lord just changes our hearts and our minds about it, and we see it in different ways. And, and we can not only see our blessing, but we can also truly see what that person is, is going through, and we can feel for them. So God reveals ways in which he has gifted us uh, to, also in prayer, God reveals ways in which he has gifted us to help him, or help them, excuse me. When we pray for somebody, we start praying for these needs, and I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm praying for somebody and there's a physical need and all of a sudden it pops into my head. Oh, I I have that. Oh, I have the ability to get that for them. Why am I just praying for them when I have the ability to actually help them as well? Right. Or I'm sitting there thinking I'm praying and I'm thinking, oh, somebody in the church mentioned that they had this or I'm going to check with this brother and sister to see what they can do. I mean, Prayer is a catalyst to a lot of different things, and it's a catalyst to us ministering to people. I I can tell you right now, it's not good enough just for us to sit there and just pray for people and never do anything for anybody. Prayer is the initial ministry, right? You go to the Lord first and foremost in prayer, but through prayer, God reveals how you can help that person. God equips you to help that person. God gives you a conviction to help that person. So that's why I say prayer is a catalyst catalyst for us to start serving one another and to start ministering to one another. If if we compare our testimony to a candle, right, let our light shine before men, they may glorify our Father in heaven. Well, if we compare that to a candle, prayer is a spark that lights that candle, right? It's what gets us going. We do everything through prayer, and prayer is extremely important, and it's one of the pillars of our faith. So not only did we, do we see uh, the Trinity in prayer, but we also see the importance of the gospel. And I'll finish with this topic here. Paul blesses the uh, believers in Colossae with wisdom about the cause of their growth, both spiritual and numerical. And it's the really, um, when it's spiritual, it's, it's also, when it's numerical, it's also spiritual. When it's spiritual, it's also numerical. If God is behind it, right? If God is behind it, um, the church will, will grow in, in spirit and in number. We see that in scripture throughout. Um, Colossians 1 verses 5 through 6 say this. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. And it also, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now, what's really neat about these words from Paul is, number one, they're prophetic. Because as Paul is writing to this young, the young universal church here, um, he, is, he is speaking some truth in how, how it would grow and how it would spread throughout the whole world. Because when we look at the history of the church, through the centuries, Christianity would experience exponential growth uh, through the word of God. It would reach every continent, even those that were not known. And so as Paul is, is, is saying this, uh, he, this is prophetic wording coming from Paul on, on the growth of the gospel. To think about how the gospel started with 12 disciples but it would bear fruit throughout the world. Amazing. And nothing could come against it. 
every, they, they've thrown everything against the word of God. They've thrown everything against the, the gospel. Even today, they're trying to discredit the gospel, the, the, the Bible, God, and yet it continues to grow. Praise God. Hallelujah. It is through the word of God that, that we see this growth by the power of the Holy Spirit. So what started with 12 disciples, we are part of that. We have been grafted in. It is a blessing for us to be able to sit here and to hear this sermon and to worship together, to read your own Bible privately, to have Bible studies. It, all that is a, an extreme blessing that we must appreciate from the Lord. The church in uh, Colossae had been bearing fruit and increasing through the word of God for the glory of God. A church needs to want to grow. That's, that's for certain. A church needs to want to grow. But if growth is caused by anything other than the power of the Holy Spirit through the word of God, it is in vain. Plain and simple. Our focus, as we look at the church in Colossae, our, fo our focus shouldn't be growth itself so that we can just grow in number and, and, and we can become this powerful organization uh, influential organization, that is not our goal. That, that is not our goal at all. Our goal is to be led by the Holy Spirit through the word of God. And for us to sit back, serve, not sit back, let me rephrase that. For us to serve the Lord and watch, watch his spirit produce the fruit. It's an awesome thing uh, to, to, to experience, and it's something that I felt like we've experienced here um, at Community Baptist Church, and we still are experiencing. Why? Because the Word of God is front and center. Um, Romans 1, verses 16 through 17 say, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The biggest spiritual transformation that I've ever experienced in my own life and also the biggest transformation I've ever seen in this church has been through the Holy Scriptures. Plain and simple. It, it has been through the Holy Scriptures and it's amazing to see what the power of the Holy Spirit will do when the word of God is central. When it is the one, when the word of God is, is, is leading us. When we are walking and are, or we're trying to walk in obedience to the word, but, but no matter what, the word of God is preached and it's taught. It's, it's awesome to see the fruit that comes from that. When the word is central, there are several things that occur within a church. Um, what I've noticed is that when the word when the word is central, sin is exposed. For sure, it's exposed. It, it's not a place where you can just come here and feel good about yourself. In fact, a lot of times when you leave, you're going to see yourself as a sinner in need of a savior. Right? That's that's what that's what the scriptures are for. That's what that's what they do for us. Uh, they they show us how good God is. Well, the only way we know how good God is is to see how bad we are, right? And, and how undeserving we are of his grace, love, and mercy. So 
you see sin exposed, and then you also have repentance commanded. Repentance is not, oh, yeah, we should repent. You shall repent. It is a command, and you see brothers and sisters who fall into sin, they repent. And, and, and that's one of the wonderful blessings that you see when the word is central. When the word is central, you also see that his sheep hear his voice. And they follow him. Also, this is the hard part. Also, you see those who oppose it. And they leave. Now, people leave for a lot of different reasons. And I'm not saying that everybody who's ever left our church has left because they're opposed to the word of God. But there have been some who have left because of what is preached and what is taught. But that's what the word is supposed to do. It divides. It not only unites, it divides. And so that is very hard to go through because you don't want to see people leave for that reason. But it is what it is. God is still in control. God is purifying his church. When the word is central, the church grows in faith, in hope, and in love. It grows in those things because that's what the word commands us to do. There are a whole lot of other benefits when the word is central. Now, if you are here and you're not a believer, if you're going to ever become a Christian, if you're ever going to follow Christ, it's going to have to be through the word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. I can't change your mind. No one else can. God has to renew your heart before you see the truth for what it is. Now, on the other side of things, though, if you are going to grow as a Christian, it's going to have to be by the power of the Holy Spirit through the word of God. There is no quick fix to help you to be able to grow exponentially as a Christian in knowledge, in service, in love, in faith, in hope. There is nothing but the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's, it's, it's that important. We see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's, it's through the word. So I want to end with this. If you yourself are struggling with your faith, with hope, with love, and by the way, we all struggle with that from time to time. So if you are struggling in your faith with your hope or with love, start being consistent in prayer and the study of his word. That's where you need to start. Don't start by going and getting a book about struggling with faith, hope, and love. You know what I mean? That might be helpful a little bit later, but start with prayer and the word of God. Be consistent in it. 
Don't do it just for like a week or a month. I mean, this has to be part of who you are now. The word of God is what sustains us spiritually. So if you are struggling in any way with your faith, be consistent in prayer and his word. Now, if you come to me and you say you're struggling in your faith, guess what I'm going to tell you? Right? The first thing I'm going to tell you or ask you, are you praying and are you reading? And if you're not doing one of those things, you're going to have to go back and restart that. Because a lot of times we're like, well, that's too simple. That can't be it. Right? That, that's just way too simple. It has to be something more complicated than that. No. Prayer, scripture is foundational. If you're not doing that, then other things are going to fall apart. Prayer and scripture, keep this in mind. Just because you start praying and you start to read scripture doesn't mean that everything's going to get fixed. Because that's, that's what we expect. We're like, okay, I, I'll start praying, I'll start reading, and then God's going to bless me and then this thing will go away. Prayer and scripture may not change your situation. That's not what you're going for. Prayer and scripture, although it does not change your situation, this is what I guarantee it will do if you're a Christian. It will change you. And that will make the biggest difference. That's what we're seeking after. It will change us. And we will know God is with us. Never leave us. And he'll never forsake us. Let us pray.